Welcome back to Mike and Amit Talk Tech. And for this series, we're going to dig deep into a topic that has been around for the last year, and it is the hottest topic in tech. There is really no doubt this is the hottest topic in tech. Of course, we're going to be talking about generative AI. And through six episodes, we're going to go into different elements of what it is, where it came from, where it's going, who the major players are, and so forth. And one of the reasons that we thought this was necessary is because it's so big. I mean, everybody sort of has heard about it. There, there's some recent research from the uh, Pew Internet Research Group that's 75% of Americans, of course, this is US data, have heard about ChatGPT, but only 24% of those people have actually used it. So there's awareness out there, but the knowledge is relatively shallow. So we wanted to give you kind of a bite-sized chunks of explanation about what generative AI is in plain English. I mean, that's the objective of this uh, this series. Absolutely, Mike. And again, just adding on to that, right? When, when you and I, we deal with executives in Europe, in Asia, in Africa, we sometimes we get pretty consistent questions to the survey that you just kind of quoted, right? Is this new? You know, what's what's happening in this area? What exactly is ChatGPT slash large language models slash generative AI? Is this old? I mean, you know, I've been hearing about AI for decades. Is this truly, truly different? And of course, the big million dollar, billion dollar, trillion dollar question. How is this going to impact our lives? Is this truly disruptive? Or is this yet another tech fad? We've had a few of those over the last decade or so, right? So I think our plan is to give our perspective and try to walk the audience through our ideas and opinions along these questions that we most consistently receive. For sure. And let's, and let's dig in. So in this episode we're going to go back in time and look at the history of AI and how we came to the point we are at today with generative AI. So maybe we start off, I mean, we're going to jump back into history, but before we do that, maybe just a definition. It's a simple question, but it's not one that's, that's very well answered today. That is, what is AI? What is AI? Well, what's your favorite definition of, of AI, Amit? You know, this is one of those things where you ask 10 people, you get 11 different answers. And quite honestly, the weird part is none of them is really wrong. They're just different perspectives. My personal way of thinking about it, Mike, is machines that can think, machines that can learn, machines that can understand. I want to go beyond saying machines that can do things that humans can do, because that can happen in many different ways without the machine really being capable of learning. Now, I'm not saying it has to learn the way you and I learn, but it has to learn by itself without any outside intervention for me to call it artificial intelligence. So Mike, what's, what's your thought? How, how do you take a look at this? I think that's a very good definition. I mean, there is something about AI simulating human intelligence and machines. There's something about that, but I think that's almost limiting. You know, why is it all about human intelligence? You know, we're not going to create other humans. So it's something else. So this idea of what does intelligence really mean, I think is at the core of AI. 
and that's what we're going to dig into. But if we look at the definition, the original definition, the original definition going back in history was by John McCarthy, who's one of the founders of AI in 1956. And he defined AI as the science and engineering of making intelligent machines, especially intelligent computer programs. So it was kind of a limited, somewhat recursive definition at that time. But of course, at that time, couldn't see the potential of these tools and what they can do today. Absolutely. And I, I think that also kind of hints at how old this thing really is, right? I mean, talking a little bit about a history of this thing. Look, honestly, the moment we invented the modern computer, we kind of figured out that what we've got here is kind of sort of going to imitate the human brain, even though at the time it was obviously at an extremely small scale, right? I mean, think of the extreme example. A multiplication. We, we are pretty much the only animal that we know of that can do multiplication. And 50, 70, 80 years ago, we already had a ready tool that could multiply, you know, extremely large numbers with near perfect accuracy. So that definition is perfectly on the money for the time, but it also hints at the age of this technology or for how long we've been trying to achieve this idea, if you will. And I think there's another, if we go back around the same time, there's the famous Turing test, right? The Turing test from Alan Turing, 1950, he set out the Turing test. And the Turing test is basically a test of whether a computer can kind of trick a human into thinking that it's human. He set this out, whatever it was, 73 years ago. And at that time, it seemed quite unlikely that a computer could actually, you know, converse with a human being to the point where the human being was not sure if it was a computer or another human that they were talking to. But of course, now with the technology we have today, that kind of seems obvious. Yeah, and there have been uh, shifting goalposts along the way, right? So just like you said, in the 1940s, mid to late 1940s, we had the electronic uh, machines and we were thinking already about artificial intelligence. The Turing test comes in the 1950s. And then in the 1960s, we have this moment. We have this moment where, you know, multiple scientists actually declare victory. We have scientists actually going to the popular press and saying, hey, look, you know, we think we've got this. We think in a few years, we're going to be able to build and train machines that can pretty much do everything that human beings can do. And then, you know, human beings can just sit back and relax. All the tasks are going to be done by computers. We'll kind of sort of be redundant, but we'll be having a good life, right? Obviously, we know this did not happen. So AI kind of died, and that, that kind of led to what's known as the first AI winter sometime in the mid-1960s. And that was a fascinating moment, right? Because uh, up until that point, I mean, if we, if, if we just, again, not just in terms of history, but we dive a little bit into you know, how do computers work? What are we trying to do when we get computers to work? Now, if you really think about it, a computer is actually pretty stupid. It can do whatever we tell it to do without making a mistake. But the problem is we have to provide it with absolutely spot on pinpoint instructions for exactly what we want it to do. And once we make those instructions, obviously this can do this incredibly well and fast and without tiring and making mistakes. The catch is, of course, we tell the computer what to do. Until the 1960s, a lot of scientists thought, hey, look, you know, a lot of the decision making that we do, that humans do, is nothing but a set of conditional statements. You know, if it's hot, 
you know, turn on the fan. You know, if, if you're cold, wear a sweater. If you're hungry, go have something to eat. So if we put in enough of these if-then statements into a machine, if we actually capture enough of these conditions, it's just a question of size. We're eventually going to get there. And the first death of AI, if you will, the first AI winter arose because scientists very quickly figured out that that's not really how the human brain works. It's a way more complex than that. And they said, okay, this is the limit of the technology right now. We can't go any further. And AI, the technology of AI kind of just took a backseat. It kind of died in computer science, right? And there was, there was, a, there was a very famous report called the Light Hill Report in the UK that came out. It's very critical of AI and the progress that was being made. And, and that led to you know, reductions of funding in the UK and in the US and in other places. And the ironic thing, I think, I mean, just that during that time, you know, when the, the period of that first AI winter, there were some actually some very, very large developments in the mathematics and the technology that would eventually lead to what we know now as being AI, particularly related to Bayesian networks and probabilistic models. Absolutely. And those, even though we did not probably realize it at the time, are now the bedrock of what we call machine learning today, right? And this is when the real exciting stuff, especially in mathematics, mathematics of computing, were taking place. And again, we did not know the implications of this just like we did not realize the implications of something uh, Google released in December of 2017. We're going to talk about that later. But at the time, we just did not know in the 60s and 70s that this is going to have a profound impact on the field. And it wasn't honestly until, what was that, Mike, mid-80s, when Jeffrey Hinton and his colleagues at the University of Toronto came out with the next real true breakthrough with the backpropagation algorithm? That's right. Yeah. So there was there was progress being made, but then in 1980s, yeah, some researchers, you know, came up with backpropagation and neural networks, and it was really the neural networks combined with this idea of backpropagation, which led to a massive increase in capabilities and accuracy of these models. And an interesting anecdote on that note, right? I mean, Jeffrey Hinton, which at least some of you would have heard of, he's famously known as the godfather of AI, resigned from Google several months ago over some disagreements. But uh, he has a very interesting history. He's, he's actually British. He moved to the United States like a lot of people did in the 60s and 70s to study mathematics and computer science. And he was a professor at Carnegie Mellon in the United States. And he had a moral disagreement with accepting money from the Pentagon to work on defense contracting. And as a consequence, he shifted to Toronto in Canada. And the rest is history, right? I mean, it's kind of like, uh, for those of you who might be baseball fans, this is the classic Babe Ruth moment of uh, Babe Ruth moving away from uh, the Boston Red Sox and onto the Yankees and the rest is history. And as as a Canadian, you know the, these are these are great stories to hear because the uh, you know the U.S.'s losses and has been Canada's gain. I mean, our next uh, episode is really going to go into the you know some of the technology and math behind uh, generative AI, kind of deep dive into that. But since you brought it up, maybe you could give a a brief summary of, of about propagation and why it was so important to the development of generative AI. So this was an absolutely brilliant, brilliant idea, right? So just as I said previously, we'd been trying to 
brute force our way, just feed more and more instructions, add computing power, and work that way towards artificial intelligence. And we quickly discovered we can't do that, right? So for our readers who want to understand why that is not possible, you know, let me ask you a question which might seem extremely silly, but trust me, this is a classic computer science question. And the question is, can you identify your own mother? Let me repeat that, just in case some of you thought they didn't hear me properly. Do you think you can recognize your own mother? I'm not joking. True question, right? I think I, and the answer I, I is... I probably identify my own mother, yeah. There we go, right? Most of us can. I mean, we have research telling us that babies can identify their mothers uh, very soon after birth. Here's the catch, though. Try writing down a step-by-step -step guide that will allow other people to recognize your mother just by reading the guide. That's impossible. That's impossible. So our brain does something which we can't really explain. And the moment you realize that, that's a problem. Because that means that by definition, machines can never do it. Think about riding a bicycle. Think about swimming. Think about so many things we do on a day-to-day -day basis. Our brain does it fine. But if I tell you to write a step-by-step -step instruction for swimming, you really can't do it, right? I mean, there's something our brain does which is really inexplicable. And this was the roadblock which scientists faced for 10, 15 years. And this is something that got cracked with backpropagation. The idea behind backpropagation was, we will create an algorithm in which you feed in examples as input data. Just examples. You don't need to tell me how to do something. If you give me enough examples, the algorithm will propagate these examples forward and then backward through the algorithm system, automatically adjust the weights of this neural network which was developed, and use that to identify the input that you've given me. So in this particular system, I no longer need to tell you how to recognize my mother. If I have enough pictures of my mother, I feed it into the model. Based on the different pictures that I'm giving, the model automatically adjusts its inputs. And then if my mother comes in front of the camera, based on the input, based on the final state of the neural network, this thing can do a pattern matching and essentially say, well, there's a 76.9% chance that this person in front of the camera is Amit's mother or something like that. And I hope our listeners see the genius of this technique because in one shot, we bypassed the need to tell computers how to do something. If we have enough data, if we have enough examples, we can now suddenly get the computer to do a lot of things. And of course, back then in the 1980s, the compute power was really not there, right? The data was not there. So it was difficult for these researchers to build models that could kind of match the potential of what they created. That would have to wait and that would come later. It did, right? And that, that, that was almost the second AI winter where people said, yeah, cool stuff, but you know, you can only do little Mickey Mouse kinds of problems. You're incapable of doing anything really powerful until about what, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, when we finally have enough data and, and Moore's law caught up in terms of computing power. Yeah, there was an AI winter in the 1990s where there was a huge amount of promise and then the systems that were delivered just didn't deliver on that promise. So, so people then got disillusioned again and then there was a rise of e-commerce and, and everybody kind of moved on. But research in the field continued 
through the 1990s and the early 2000s. And we had, again, Jeffrey Hinton doing work on uh, deep belief networks, which is a significant step towards uh, uh, deep learning. And then we had AlexNet and we had Ian Goodfellow coming up with generative adversarial networks. Jan LeCun and his colleagues as well. Yeah. All that, right? All that happening, happening in the first sort of 10 years of this millennium, maybe the first uh, 15 years. And suddenly the tools were better. Uh, the technologies are better, but there's also a lot more compute power and data to work with and test these models. Indeed, yes. Indeed, yes. And a lot of the breakthroughs, I would say 75, 80, 85% of the actual breakthroughs, the applications of artificial intelligence that you see in real life today is based on those breakthroughs that we got in the 80s and 90s, combined with absurd amounts of computing power and data. So right up to, shall we say, 2020, late 2022, pretty much everything that you and I called AI was essentially some version of the backpropagation algorithm, some version of deep neural networks coming together to deliver incredibly powerful, incredibly useful, in many cases, incredibly life-saving kinds of outputs. Sure, and I think it became real to people through a number of sort of high-profile events. Because so all this stuff is happening behind the scenes, but nobody really takes much notice of it. And, and one of those, I think, was when DeepMind beat Lee Sedol in that famous game of Go in 2016. Now, going back, we've had chess systems that have beaten the best chess players, and that's going back to the, to the 1990s. But those were not really kind of traditional... AI. I mean, that was just brute force statistical models that could just crunch, crunch a lot of numbers. And, and because chess is a very kind of logical game, but, but Go is, is a lot less logical. It's a lot more complex because there's a bigger board. And there was a sense that, you know, a computer could never beat a human. There's also a lot of creativity in Go. The, the computer would never be able to, to win. And, and these, these systems got better and better. And eventually DeepMind from Google came up with AlphaGo. And AlphaGo was bit like the chess computers that it, they, they inputted the rules and so forth and suggestions about how to play and what to do. But they also allowed the system to have a lot of flexibility. And, you know, what happened during that series of matches was, you know, this famous move 37. And the, this move 37 in, I think it was, was it the, was it the second match? Yeah. You know, nobody expected. I mean, it was just, it actually broke many of, of the rules. The fundamentals uh, of Go, absolutely. They'd never seen anything like this. And, and a lot of the commentators at the time said, this has to be a bug in the system. This is a mistake. This is just a mistake. And it wasn't, right? It wasn't because, you know, I don't know how many dozens of moves later, that, that 37th move became pivotal in that match. And it really changed the kind of the feeling, the environment uh, around that, you know, Lisa Dahl ended up losing. And it was sort of a very, very well covered, high profile event. But what happened after that, I think is even more interesting is that is that DeepMind came up with a second system called AlphaGo Zero. Because they learned from AlphaGo that, hey, if we're feeding in all this information, and it was actually some unconventional move that a human would never make that allowed the computer to win. Why don't we take that to the extreme and just give it no rules at all? AlphaGo, zero. Zero meaning didn't teach it anything about Go. 
it just started off like a baby, you know, playing these games and making stupid mistakes. I mean, didn't even it was actually it was actually subhuman when it started off. But then look at this. This is the power of computing and the power of the brilliance of these algorithms behind the scenes, right? Within a day and a half, it had beaten AlphaGo, the computer that beat Lisa Doll. And I think within two and a half days, it became the greatest Go player in history by a country mile. I mean, it had got a Go rating, which is impossible to reach for humans ever. And this machine is basically unbeaten and it probably will remain so. And, and that's right. It beat uh, AlphaGo, I think, 100 games to zero. And then it, they said, okay, well, what about other games? You know, can it play other games? And, and, it, and it did the same thing and became super, super expert at all those games. So there was, a, there was kind of a movement saying, you know, the human part is actually just reducing the power of these, of these algorithms and these systems. Let's just take away the human. Let's, let's let the AI run the show. It's going to be better than any human. And that kind of trend moved on for quite a while, and there was a lot more developments. But then something very interesting happened relatively recently, I mean, and that's we see ChatGPT. And ChatGPT, the power of ChatGPT is bringing back the human into the equation. It really is. And I think this is perhaps a great hook to leave our listeners on to entice them to come back for the next episode, where we're gonna tell you, first of all, you know, why was ChatGPT even required, right? I mean, what, I mean, if he had such a powerful system like AlphaGo Zero and his brethren, why couldn't we just leverage those? Why couldn't we just research those? What was the need for something like ChatGPT or generative AI or large language models, whatever you want to call them? What kind of problems did they solve? And then we can talk a little bit about, you know, what does that landscape look like today? Because it is rapidly evolving, right, Michael? Absolutely. And I think, you know, the AlphaGo's and the AlphaGo Zeros were so good, but they were so good in a logical world, a world that was, you know, there are rules around games and things you do and don't do. And it's fairly consistent when it comes to language. We know, I mean, if you ever tried to learn an, a, another language, it's a mess. Languages are messy. People are messy. And so we needed a new development to try and take advantage and better understand and be able to respond to the messiness that we have in real life around language, music, video, art, images. And that's where we see the current, you know, crop of AI, which we'll talk about in the next episode.